Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about confirmation bias, echo chambers on social media, and discernment and how to understand and interpret all the various memes and videos that keep popping up in our social media. And joining me today to discuss these things, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. How's it going, Amber? Hey, John. It's going well. Good to be here. And joining us also, we have Reverend Daniel Parham, who is Assistant Director of Undergraduate Retention and Success at Biola University. How's it going, Daniel? Going pretty well, John. Nice to be with you all. So let's just go ahead and dive in. As I mentioned, on our news feeds and our various social media platforms, there's a lot of back and forth of various memes and videos that, you know, try and reinforce some particular view that we have in regards to the racial tensions, the protests, and and a lot of the sort of ripple effect from the murder of George Floyd. Some of these things include, for example, memes that are being posted about peaceful protests from Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X in particular. Maybe we could start there. What do we make of sort of the use of these sorts of memes that we see in our news feeds? It, it is it has been troubling that I have I've seen individuals use images or quotes of Dr. King to critique uh, protests, because in one sense, Dr. King embodied, the, I think, the moral compass of what protesting was to, uh, to reflect, which was uh, peaceful, nonviolent, but also radical, right? Mm. To be radical is not to be unorthodox, to be, you know, uh, out of step, but to be radical is to say, like, I have a, I have profound belief, right, that all men should be treated with dignity and respect. And in a world that is distorted, that is absolutely radical. So for someone to be out on the street and say that I am a man, as they did uh, in the 60s, 1968, during the uh, sanitation workers protests in Memphis, is a radical statement to make. Because to mm-hmm. to say that someone has to reinforce the fact that they are a human being is a radical concept. And so to be out on the streets, to say that peacefully, and to have some who detract from that and possibly lead to actions that are not representative of the movement is not to say that the movement in of itself is wrong. For the very people who uh, I think have a tendency to quote Dr. King and to use him, albeit use him posthumously while the man can't speak for himself, right. against uh, protests, I think is short-sighted because it, it fails to recognize that protest in of itself um, is peaceful and radical at the same time, and not, a, and not at a dismissal of the kind of the uh, strange, you know, pulling away that sometimes happens with a few that leads to, to riots. So call riots what, what, what they are, um, but to, to dismiss protesting is a little short-sighted to use another person's name who cannot speak for himself in regards to peaceful protesting also, I think is a little short-sighted. You know, one of the um, categories that I have for protests that I've been thinking a lot about as I've seen people process the idea of what does it mean to protest? um, Or is it good to protest? Is it bad to protest? What what does the nonviolent protest mean? And where are the limits to that, et cetera? Um, I think about something that isn't so foreign for evangelicals and white evangelicals in particular, and that is protesting abortion. 
and the the evangelicals march for life that goes on every year and then all kinds of local protests in front of abortion clinics etc and and they come with messages like the life of the unborn matters and speaking for those who can't speak for themselves and protecting voices and and wanting to see laws change in a, so that our laws can better do this etc and i i find it to be really interesting that we have a category for for peaceful protest for this we have a category for some kind of civil and political action on behalf of the unheard other we do desire to see laws changed in certain ways and we do know what it means to do that nonviolently we also have categories for people who don't do that nonviolently. They have really graphic pictures and they are very explicit in your face and not perhaps at all to the same degree as like looting necessarily, but we we do know what it means to have people on the fringes of that that we even disassociate with. I know one of the schools that I attended actually posted when one of these more extremist groups came nearby the campus. They posted on community forums saying, just so you know, our school is not affiliated with this kind of protest. But we do believe that the life of the unborn is something to be protected. So it's interesting how we have a lot of similar dynamics that are actually very familiar to us as evangelicals. And I think it's helpful to think about, to use them as categories when we're thinking about the protests going on in the wake of George Floyd's death, that when we're holding up these signs that say Black Lives Matter, it's it's in that same way needing to emphasize that there are certain groups that reinforcing that their lives do matter in the same way that we're speaking for the unborn and reinforcing that those lives matter as well. And so I think thinking about it in in those kind of categories that we already have might be a helpful way for us to process what's going on right now and also begin to think what does it mean, mean to move about in this space. Another example of protest is the idea of taking a knee, which has resurfaced, especially, I think, recently with the NFL's announcement that they were wrong in particular. Other other sports organizations as well have chimed in on this, but the NFL in particular being you know, quite famous because of Colin Kaepernick's protests during the national anthem, the NFL has come out and said that they were basically wrong to, to treat it the way that they did. And so you have a, a lot of players and, and teams sort of coming out and saying that they will go ahead and and take a knee in the future. And as a as a protest, I mean, this is another example of, of protest. It's often obfuscated. It's no longer about whatever the protest is. It's sort of made into something else. So for example, initially it was made into a you know, defamation of the flag or the military. And now one of the things that I've seen recently is this sort of conflation of taking a knee and worshiping God. You know, I've seen a lot of memes where it says something like, you know, I only, you know, take a knee for God. You know, um, I wonder if we could talk about that uh, and sort of what's going on there. So when I think about kneeling as, as or lack thereof as a form of protest, and then the argument against how that could be used as a form of worship or argument, you know, in terms of like, I only kneel for God. I think there are these layers baked in of patriotism with religion, right? Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I find challenging in that is that I think when we when we think about 
someone's bias, if their if if their religion is rooted in a fundamental patriotism or nationalism, mm-hmm. they cannot see them inextricably untied from one another. And and I think that is problematic because the scriptures does not call us to be patriotic or nationalistic. The scriptures does call us to submit to those who have authority under us. Mm. But at the same time, it's not authoritative for one to have to pledge allegiance. If anything, we probably to make a stronger case that you shouldn't pledge allegiance. Mm. Uh, uh, if, if we, if we want to go down the trail of like that knee, uh, taking a knee is or bowing in one sense is a posture towards God, then shouldn't our allegiance also be fully and, and impartially or impartially rather to God? Yeah. So uh, that same argument can be made and say that I should make an allegiance to a country where my Christian ethic says that I'm a foreigner in a land that's not my own in some ways. And so to, to make that argument, uh, you also have to unravel uh, the same argument that can be made against any form of patriotism if you're going to use that as a crux against individuals who peacefully protest by taking a knee or other physical forms to show that they protest against um, something that doesn't embody the authenticity of their experience, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think of a, you know, a Colin Kaepernick, albeit people's uh, opinions of, of him, right? When, he's ref- when he is taking a knee in terms of the national anthem, he is saying that I cannot embody the words that are not truthful to the experience that I have seen had and the experience that I, I, I've heard from my brothers and sisters who happen to be of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do um, in one sense with his freedom that's not bound in a religious patriotic type of theology. Say so, like, I don't have to give allegiance to something that actually doesn't in one sense doesn't give allegiance to me. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think um, what you're really saying is that there's this charge of inconsistency, right? The whole accusation that you know kneeling is is act of worship, and I only worship God. Really, it, it, it's sort of inconsistently applied because the posture towards the flag could be interpreted as an act of worship as well. And I think we're not charging you know patriots with doing such. And I think the same should be applied the other way around. And and just you know make the main thing the main thing. It's it, there's no reason to obfuscate it and say that protesters are somehow worshiping. I I, I just I just see that as as sort of uh, not keeping your eye on the prize. Yeah, I think one of the things that's helpful for us to do as Christians is to always to be very careful to guard our heart and examine our motives in different things and maybe look for ways that we've conflated maybe political ideas with our Christian faith on both sides of the aisle. I think we can be susceptible to this. One of the things that I love about the prophets in the Old Testament is the way they call out to the people of Israel to do this very thing, to self-examine and to see the places where their faith may be phony Mm. (laughs) or their devotion may actually be deceptive because it's covering up ulterior motives or ulterior desires, aims, or goals that are not necessarily purely for God's glory. And the way that they're allowing sin to run rampant 
among them because they are putting on these airs that they're righteous, but in reality, their righteousness is a filthy rag. And I think that is something that as Christians, we always need to to do. And I, I think particularly in this day and age where political discourse is very charged and it's very intense and so many people are involved in it and everybody has to have an opinion about something. And so what it's easy for us to do is to let our Christianity be a tool of our political ideology or to allow our Christianity to be absorbed into our politics. And a lot of this might be subconscious. We don't realize that we're doing this. But at the end of the day, when your Christianity and your politics conflict, you go with your politics and you kind of bend your Christianity to fit it. (laughs) And so if nationalism is is your politics and kind of really strong sense of patriotism, then you're going to look to scriptures and and find ways that you're going to be able to affirm that or agree with that. On the other hand, if you have a, a leftist ideology that is your ultimate, then you're going to look to the scriptures to to affirm that ideology. When in reality, it should be that scripture critiques our ideology, our ideologies. Scripture isn't absorbed into it. Scripture stands outside of it, and our politics is a tool for Christianity instead of Christianity being a tool for politics. And I think anybody would affirm that theoretically, but whether or not you recognize it in yourself, that's another thing. I think there's another way in perhaps a different circle that we can put our Christianity in service to our politics, or I guess more properly, our theology in service to our politics. One of the more recent controversies that has happened among scholars and and, and people in the church in general is this question of what is the gospel? What's the, the core nugget or the central feature of the gospel? And Well, I think there were so many things at play in that conversation. There was difference in epistemic concepts of of what it means to know something. We talked about that on on this podcast before. And there's lots of different motivations and reasons, and it would be improper to reduce anything down to any motivation. However, I think one motivation that I'm convinced uh, is lurking in the background of that conversation or is at least involved in in people's thinking process to different degrees, is probably the issue of race and the issue of critical race theory and the idea of systemic oppression. Because one of the things that if, if you want to insist that the gospel is exclusively just about um, a transactional kind of justification of personal sin uh, before God, uh, then, then what it means is there's not so much space for the gospel to speak into systemic issues because mm-hmm. it really, really is just about my personal sin before God. There's not the space conceptually for systemic sin, which was very ironic to me because there's typically people who lean in the stronger reformed camps that were sticking up for this view. And, and I always thought, you know, if, if you hold to total depravity, I would think that you'd be very reluctant mm. to not affirm sin, <laughs> in, yeah. uh, not just our hearts, but in our systems and in and, and everything that humans do. If we really truly are just just depraved, of course, not just the thoughts and intentions of our hearts or the wickedness of our hearts 
is going to reflect that, but also the institutions that we build. That, that is <laughs> such a good point. Are going to reflect that as well. So it, I would think for a reform person to shy away from saying that sin is not so much in, in a certain area seems to be a little bit odd. But if you understand the gospel in, in a broader way and you see it from this kingdom perspective, that it includes justification by faith, it absolutely deals with the personal sin problem, but it also deals with the communal sin problem, the world sin problem, and it's this multifaceted mosaic type of thing, then it is going to give us space to say, you know what, there are there is systemic oppression and it exists and it's sinful and it grieves God, especially a God who's revealed himself as a God of justice, not the least of which revealed himself that way on the cross. So I, I think that that's another way that maybe we need to think and ask ourselves, okay, am I passionate about this certain theological viewpoint, potentially because of some of my more political concerns. And so I think the practice of self-examination, especially right now in our society, you know, I, I feel really passionately about this side of the issue. Well, why is that? It doesn't matter which side it is. You know, why is that? Is it maybe because I have held a political ideology as ultimate and I'm allowing my Christianity to be a tool, to be a confirmation of that ideology? Or is it really truly because I'm holding the scriptures above everything else and I desire to see my politics in accordance with scripture? Yeah, that's really helpful. So speaking of confirmation, can we talk about confirmation bias? Maybe let's begin with sort of like a definition or a description of what confirmation bias looks like and this echo chamber dynamic that we experience in our uh, social media circles. So I, I'll give a little bit of a framework, uh, confirmation bias. As we all know that as human beings, we have biases that have been want either fortify for our my experiences or um, what we have learned from the environments in which we've, we've grown up in or been adapted to. And we interpret information in a sense to reinforce those existing beliefs, right? To, mm-hmm. uh, to really uphold and support those beliefs. What comes from that that is a challenge at times is that we see our beliefs as objective and not prone to, to any form of critique, reflection on, on how that could be expanded upon. And so individuals can become defensive, right, in those moments when what they view as objective is challenged. Uh, and I think what we've seen in this discourse over the past few weeks, and especially I think over the past few years, is that this uh, intent from, from individuals to hold on to that which they've seen as objective has pointed to an argumentative, dismissive at times, and a very um, heated conversations and debates of whether one should align in, in one certain area that affirms all, all that they've come to know and believe, or fight against that because someone is um, critiquing or challenging uh, those, those existing beliefs. I think that the era of social media makes it particularly difficult to not fall into confirmation bias simply because it, it creates a curated echo chamber for you. Right, right. <laughs> it gives you the tools to create your own echo chamber is, is more accurate. So you have tools that are not bad in and of themselves, the, the mute button, the block option, the confirm friend request or delete friend. And 
I think one of the difficulties of it is that civil discourse is being done not in the flesh face to face. You're not talking with an embodied person. I was watching a show the other day and one of the characters said, it's a whole lot easier to lie when you're not looking someone in the face. Mm-hmm. And I just, I couldn't help but think of social media. It's, it's a whole lot easier to lie, but it's also a whole lot easier to, to say extreme things when you are not looking someone in the eyes and seeing another human being, when you're not seeing mm-hmm. the other. So I think with social media, that's something that we have to be really, really careful with, that we don't just wrap ourselves into these echo chambers. And, and what you end up doing is it feels really nice to be affirmed and to to be in a space where everything around you is telling you that you're right and you've got the right positions and you see everything clearly and everybody else is in the wrong. Um, and you've created a world where it's the projection of yourself, basically. And it's a super dangerous place to be. And so one of the things that I keep thinking about is, I think we all know the dangers of that, but how do you break out of it? Even if you mm. want to, in the way that that social media is set up in the way we're doing discourse today, it, it almost becomes impossible to actually get out of that. So I wonder what ideas you guys have for how do we guard against that? How do we maybe interact on social media in ways that will minimize the echo chamber to as the best that we can? And mm-hmm. what are other ways that we can break out of that? I think at a basic level, the first thing that comes to my mind is just having a, a humility and a curiosity about the information that we come across. I think it's very easy within the curated confirmation bias bubble that you're just describing, Amber, to sort of say, oh, I've done my research because I watched a you know 20-minute Facebook video in which somebody recorded themselves playing with markers, explaining how the Clinton Foundation is actually funding Antifa and, and, and sort of just be like, yep, that's how it is. That's what's going on. And it's sort of like, okay, why do you think that's what's going on? Is it because you want to believe that the Clinton Foundation is funding Antifa? What's the evidence? Have you looked beyond this short little video that somebody posted of themselves playing with markers explaining this to you? You know what I, you know what I mean? I, I just think if we had maybe a, a little bit more of a sort of suspicion of our inclinations to want things to be true, you know, if we were maybe a little bit more suspicious, a little bit more skeptical of that idea, and actually just said, you know, in the pursuit of truth, I want to dig into this a little bit. Yeah, and I I think that it's interesting too because a lot of these videos that are floating around, or podcast episodes, or blog posts, or whatever, the appeal of so many of them is that they are easy to understand. You can grasp it in five minutes or, oh man, you should listen to this podcast episode because the person who was explaining this put it in a way that makes it so accessible and, and easy to understand. And while I think that it's really good and important to make things accessible, I think that's just another thing that you could have a bit of suspicion on and, and some introspection and ask yourself, am I buying into the things because they're easy to understand? They don't take a lot of labor and investment. And and is that why I'm sort of agreeing with this? And can I maybe stop for a moment and think that typically the things that are just with a sweep of a hand explained away don't get at any of the nuances that are actually probably going on in reality? And maybe the most simple, quote unquote, explanation is 
not the truest explanation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think having some variety in the media that we consume, uh, you know, doing so intentionally. So, for example, having a mix of podcasts or apps, news outlets, these sorts of things that don't provide, for example, just one sort of perspective. Obviously, there's bias in journalism. That That's a given. It's impossible to be quote unquote objective, right? But it's one thing to have you know, sort of a a lean in a particular direction. And it's another thing to really kind of be a sort of, you know, propaganda outlet. And so, you know, if you, for example, are are aware that the outlet that you're reading skews far right or skews far left, you know, not saying you should never read it ever again, uh, necessarily, but I do think, hey, what if you supplemented these sorts of, you know, highly interpreted uh, portrayals of news and events with perspectives that are maybe more centrist or maybe more sort of actually, you know, trying to describe rather than prescribe what's going on. I think I would say some variety might begin to help us out there. Hmm. Yeah, we we do this as scholars when we when we research if maybe we land in one particular interpretive camp, say, it's still, we talk about the importance of reading a variety of different ways of interpreting or different ways of approaching an idea or a text, as opposed to just staying in one school of thought or or one camp. For no other reason than it it helps you understand what you're trying to say better and to, to think and to say, to be smarter about it. So it's one of those practices even in, in good scholarship, to avoid the kind of confirmation bias scholar, which is not much of a scholar anyway. Mm-hmm. So we talked about variety and we've talked about being self-reflective and having almost a, a posture of suspicion, even towards the, the motivations of your own heart in this conversation and in the way that you participate in the conversation. But what are some ways that we can cultivate discernment in the way that we engage and in the way that we process through different things. I mean, I I think about discernment. We talk about discernment bloggers and they're kind of these sin sleuths. You know, I'm going to go and look for a sin beneath every rock here and expose it, right? But I think that the way scripture talks about spirit-given discernment is, is more akin to wisdom more the ability to see the good and to pursue truth, goodness, and beauty and to become a certain kind of person that does that. So what are ways that we can cultivate that kind of wise discernment in this given age? I think, Amber, discernment comes from counsel, right? I think the scriptures clearly show that uh, when we think in a silo, we are limited to actually see the totality of of experiences that are happening and actually forms a more holistic worldview, right? And so community council and voices, even voices that you don't inherently agree with are still valuable voices to hear because it helps to refine what is beautiful, what is truthful about the experiences that are happening. And I think in this social media saturated world, right, there are key voices that we hear that project a narrative that we necessarily don't know is true because it it's a voice that's representative sometimes of the voices that are actually being denied to speak. And so I think when you have counsel, and that takes work to, to know individuals in such a way that you can actually receive counsel from them, it gives you a, a greater posture of discernment because 
now you know that you can vet this through a number of individuals who are across the spectrum of experience in life um, that helps you to see more objectively what is true about the world, right? And I think right now we see the kind of the what's true about the world is what's true about my camp. And with that, it's almost a tribalism that, that happens, but a tribalism that is oddly rooted in an individualism. It is like, I'm part of this tribe, but I get to form what I want to believe in any given moment. And scriptures, I think, show that foolish results a lot of times come from just making a decision or even framing a decision or, or your, your own mindset apart from the wise counsel of individuals. So I think as you grow in that counsel, you also grow in a discernment as to how to believe things that are true, but also have some nuances to them as well. Yeah, that really great. And I, it brought up just another thing that I've heard debated a lot is we talk about wanting to know objective truth as Christians. And we also talk about the need to have a variety of perspectives and hear a variety of different voices. And I, I think sometimes people struggle to see how those two things might not be incompatible because after all, if you're talking about objective truth, then wouldn't it not have anything to do with quote unquote perspective, right? It doesn't matter whose perspective, it's just this thing that's objective and it's there, regardless of what angle you're looking at it or not. And I think the fear is that if we bring perspective into the conversation, then it's simply we're choosing whose truth is being asserted over whose. And at that point, it's just a question of who's the more powerful one. And therefore, their truth gets to be asserted over the other. And I think that's uh, philosophically a problematic way of, of thinking about truth and what perspective has to do with it. I would say that perspectives are not over and against or antithetical to objective truth, but that they're a way of actually getting to objective truth. It's not either perspective or objectivity. Having a, a a multiplicity of perspectives allows you to get not at a multiplicity of truths, but helps you to see truth better and to know it more fully. So I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy there. And that kind of brings me to a, another thing that, that I think about when it comes to cultivating discernment of not just understanding that it, it's with that wise counsel and that multiplicity of perspectives that help you know more fully, but also looking at Maybe the way that we read what the other says, read each other's texts, if you will, well, and that text could be a tweet, it could be a, a Facebook post, it could be a blog post or whatever it might be. Um, it might be a monograph, a scholarly monograph. One thing that I've noticed that I think Christians, evangelical Christians, sadly have a tendency to do is to pick up a text from another tribe or another side of the aisle or whatever it might be and read it for the sole purpose of finding what is wrong about it mm -hmm. or finding ways to critique it. Sometimes we even do this in the classroom, right? Or I'm going to assign this text by this atheist or this, you know, whoever, um, read it, but come to class with all of your arguments for why it's incoherent or why it falls apart here, or why there's kinks in it here. And so we read it from this posture of, brute suspicion. And it's a way of holding the text, like a stiff-armed approach to the text. And what I'm looking for are the ways that it's wrong. And also, now I can say, I've read so-and-so. <laughs> I can't right. be of not ever having read that person. I can say I've read read that person. But 
my question at that point is, have you actually read that person? Right. <laughs> or have you not read that person at all? Reading is very much a, a listening activity. It requires a lot of hospitality. I'm attending to you. I'm hearing you. I'm listening to you and listening to you. And I think that a better hermeneutic for us, instead of go out and figure out what all the wrong things are, you know, think critically, right? Like mm-hmm. we need to learn how to think critically, right? I think a better hermeneutic to start off with is be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Mm. And it's amazing how if you approach a text with that hermeneutic, you see so much more than you could have seen before. And you let the scriptures be the final word. But mm-hmm. you don't come in with this stiff-armed stiff-armed way of holding the text in that sideways gaze of suspicion towards the text that I, the only reason why I'm picking you up is so that I can can prove you wrong. And mm-hmm. I think the, the problem with that is we come to the text in ways that it, it's like we have a plank in our own eye and we're trying to pick out the speck in the, the, the text's eye or the author of the text's eye. And I, I think it's appropriate for us to get the plank out of our own intent, if you will, or our own eye uh, before we can read these texts well and then actually be able to have a truly fruitful dialogue. Mm-hmm. I think that's really helpful. I love that image of, of hospitality. I often think about, you know, what does intellectual empathy uh, look like? And, and to use that hospitality metaphor, I, I, I like the, the idea of entertaining ideas. And when you think about a phrase like that, that's kind of a, you know, comes from the realm of hospitality, you know? And so if you, if you want to use like uh, Sherlock's mind palace as a, as a sort of spatial way to think about this, like, do you have, you know, in your own mind palace, so to speak, right? Do you have that kind of entertainment welcome room in which you can entertain ideas, you know, or do you just sort of have a barrier and, and, you know, you sort of keep certain ideas out from ever being entertained because they come from a different tribe or this sort of thing. And I I do think if we cultivate a little bit more of an intellectual empathy, uh, it would help us understand where people are coming from and also be able to make sure that when we disagree, we know what we're disagreeing with and that we're actually disagreeing properly with what is being advocated or, or proposed. Mm-hmm. So I have one more question for you guys in in terms of this question of how do we cultivate discernment during these times? What does the topic of prayer, the practice of prayer have to do with cultivating discernment? And how is it unique in these days? How should we be practicing it? And how can it, it grow us in wisdom, particularly in the context that we find ourselves? Well, my mind immediately goes to the Lord's Prayer right? On earth as it is in heaven. We are praying for that heavenly order, that, that just rule of God to, to manifest itself everywhere. And I just think this, this expectation, which even in the, in the Lord's Prayer itself, points to this kind of already not yet eschatological tension, which we often talk about, this longing, this desire for God's just rule to break in and fully engulf his creation as he intends to. And so I think that includes, you know, the the oppression and the injustices that, that we are seeing. And I think praying towards that end is something that we should all be doing. I think the thing that comes to my mind, and maybe this is steeped in my Pentecostal roots, but there, there is a moaning and a groaning to prayer that I think also speaks to the deep emotional 
connection that we need to have with God's heart regarding the things that we cognitively can't understand. I think mm. sometimes we try to cognitively rationalize um, injustice, and, and albeit maybe maybe even sincerely, but in one sense fortify injustice. But I think when you look at the heart of God, sometimes you don't know the words to say. You just groan the pain um, that is in this world and the lack of knowledge of knowing how to fix that pain independent of God's direct hand moving. And so I think sometimes our prayers need to be just that. Uh, a moaning and a groaning, just as the world groans for redemption, we ought to groan every once in a while because we we can't, in our limited capacity, fully understand the depth and weight of the depravity and injustice of this world, and yet not groan and long for the redemption of this world in ways that are beyond words. That's something that we have to sometimes just lay before the Lord prostrate before the Lord with a groaning for just redemption to come. Mm -hmm. And I also think there's a kind of Christian solidarity here where if we have, you know, members of our Christian family, our brothers and sisters who are groaning and yet we aren't weeping with those who weep, for example, I do think there's a, a, a problem there. I think we need to have more of that, that sense of, you know, praying alongside of those who are, you know, praying those sorts of prayers. And of course, also actively seeking to uplift them and be be involved in in what's going on uh, i think that solidarity that prayerful solidarity that is infused with the spirit's en energizing and empowerment praying on our behalf i think that's a, a really important thing mm. and both of those things very much form us into discerning people or the types of people who who have discernment as we then navigate the world because we're looking at things that are happening from the perspective of the kingdom, the coming kingdom, the already and the not yet. And we are groaning and, and lamenting and praying and anticipating and recognizing our need for the Savior every hour <laughs> in prayer. And those things really do shape us in discerning ways. I think one other thing that it does is when we pray, we sort of lay ourselves bare before the Lord. It's, it's really a very vulnerable kind of activity. One of the philosophers who I love, Jean-Louis Chrétien, talks about the woundedness of prayer, how, how we are in a sense wounded because our, our lives are interrupted, they're stopped, our self-sufficiency ceases, and, and we open ourselves up to God. And we allow our, our weaknesses and our our sin, the grossness, everything to just be exposed. And it's a way that we can discern, are, are there ways that I'm self-seeking in <laughs> the ideas that I'm pushing? Or am I truly listening to others? Am I holding my theology or my Christianity in service of my ideology? Or am I allowing my, am I allowing Christianity to reign supreme in my life and the gospel to be the, my ultimacy? Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that that helpfully rounds out our discussion about discernment and thinking about ways in which we want to, you know, not fall into this sort of confirmation bias trap, which we have created, you know, by our own fixing based upon the ways in which we can curate our social media accounts and these sorts of things. And just, just being able to think Christianly and critically uh, about 
the the media that flies by us on our news feeds uh, with a prayerful posture, with an eye towards our neighbors whom we are called to love, and with a, I think a healthy suspicion and, and concern for for truth, uh, ultimately not just quote unquote you know what we want to believe or what we want to think. Uh, and I think this has been a really helpful conversation. I'm really grateful for both of you joining us today. Yeah, thank you both for dialoguing. Thank you, John. Thank you, Amber. If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.